0: test this or set this aside. Thank you guys for being here for the last youth service of so the church year. Next week will be combined for uh, the Lord's Supper, but then August uh, 6, I believe, is our first Sunday, the new church year. So uh, seniors, that's when you'll be um, moving into uh, English service. But if I remember correctly, we actually might have a mission sharing on that first Sunday. So there actually might be a chance for seniors who are still around, you can still sit in youth service the first Sunday of August. Um, it's a very recent update, so I'll keep you guys updated on that. Um, and because it's the last youth service after the response song today, we'll have, uh, I'll have a couple leaders share about their experience serving in youth service because as New Year approaches, we are looking for more people to uh, serve in different areas. Okay, so we'll go maybe a couple minutes past uh, 12, so just so you're aware. All right. Uh, with that, let me open us up in prayer, and then we will uh, get things started. Father, teach us today how, uh, what you're truly like. The world society has an idea of who you are, but it's built on assumptions and um, it's not built on your word. As we dive into the book of Isaiah, Lord, I pray that we can truly have a picture of who you truly are, who you reveal, reveal yourself to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so if you haven't met yet, my name is Pastor Kevin. I noticed a couple of new faces, so I just want to introduce myself. And I want to open with a question, maybe a little bit of engagement if you're open to it. But what is one thing you're afraid of in life, just for anybody? You just shout it out. Hikes? Say it again. Hikes. Oh, heights. Oh, yeah, heights. Ooh, that's scary. Okay. Anything else? What else is scary for you guys? Spiders. Do you kill it, or do you have someone else kill the spider? Yeah. <laughs> Not me. <laughs> okay. Caden? <Yeah. laughs> wow. <laughs> Great friendship there. Um, anything else? What are you afraid of? Yeah. Da- oh, yeah. That's a human human experience, the human condition. Our time is limited here on this earth. Anything else? How about f- being alone? Is that scary for you guys? It's scary (laughs) to be alone. In very different circumstances, we're afraid of dying alone, no loved ones around us. We're afraid of being alone the rest of our lives. What if we never marry anybody? What if we never end up with somebody? But sometimes we're just, like me, I'm just afraid of being alone in the dark. That's like really, really scary. As a kid, if I was the only one home, if my brothers are out, my parents are out, it was, like, really scary at night. I would think something was popping from around the corner. I uh this a couple of years ago. I was driving home from church. I got into bed. I was getting ready to sleep, and then a thought came into my mind. I locked up church, but I forgot to turn off the A.C. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I have to drive all the way back to church. And this is when I lived in Santa Ana, which was 30 minutes away. It was so late, I didn't want to bother anybody, so I drove back to church. Have you guys ever been to church at night by yourself? Even a sleepover, it's scary, but by yourself, the hallways become, in my mind, haunted. Walking up the creepy hallway, going to creepy room 210 to 212, which is a room right up here, and I turn off the AC unit. I'm like, man, all that worked just for one lousy AC unit, but I was terrified the whole time. And so I think there's a sense where we, are, we all have our fears. And I think sometimes we're really afraid when we're alone, and that's a very normal human thing. But in the Bible, actually more than 2,000 years ago, God's people were also afraid. They're also afraid of being alone, being forgotten by God. And so Isaiah writes this passage to comfort his people when they are afraid. And so I have a map because if you're new here and you're not really familiar with the context of the Old Testament, this will help you uh, kind of get a glimpse of why they're so afraid. If you have the next slide, Um, this is all really, it can be complicated, but God's people... Um, They had good kings or somewhat good kings, David, Solomon. They're good in some senses. But afterwards, the kingdom divided into Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And they were so rebellious that God allows an enemy territory to conquer them. And so in the north is Israel, which is in the purple. And the nation of Assyria conquers Israel in 722 B.C. And they were deported or exiled from their home country. And so you can see the purple line. Uh, Israel is deported into Assyria, and then the green line is the southern kingdom of Judah, and so they are conquered by Babylon in uh, 586 B.C., and they are deported or exiled into um, the east, and so out of their own homeland. And so, God's people were dispersed. And The orange line just shows that Assyria brings Gentiles um, into Israel and Judah, and so it is a very traumatic experience in history of God's people. And so as they're imprisoned in different, outside of their own home, they naturally ask the question, God, I'm afraid. God, have you forgotten me? God, what about the promises you made to our forefathers in Abraham? Have you forgotten us? I thought you made that promise that you would make our nation as great as the numbers, as the stars in the sky. I thought you would make us a great nation, but now we're imprisoned. What happened, God? That was naturally their question. They were afraid because they were alone. And so it's in that that Isaiah speaks a message, a prophetic message, to have no fear, to fear not, to live fearlessly. And I think that applies to us today. We may not have enemy territories conquering America and deporting us, but we also, we all confront and face fears in the Christian life. When we try to live out in faith, we do have enemies and people who appear and want to do us harm. And so my sermon preview for today, if we have the next slide, is this, that four reasons why God's people can live fearlessly. If we have the next slide, please. Four reasons why God's people can live fearlessly. Now, I don't want us to take this out of context and say, okay, I can do whatever I want. I can be whoever I want to be because God um, is with me. That's not necessarily the angle I want us to go at because, remember, context is king. God's people were suffering, and they felt forgotten. And they deserved it, too. They were rebellious. And so for us, when we're trying to live out in faith, there will be difficulties. There there will be challenges, but you will not be forgotten by God. And so we're going to see four reasons today. If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to Isaiah chapter 41. You do have it on your bulletin, but I will turn to verses that are outside of the verses in the bulletin, so it does help to have your paper Bible out. Um, So turn to Isaiah chapter 41, I'll give you guys a moment to turn there, and we're just going to take it apart a little bit at a time. All right, this is the first reason. Let's have the next slide. The first reason we should live fearlessly is because God himself is with you. Verses 1 to 7, we won't read through it, but God is addressing the enemy nations. He is calling them to battle. He's calling them to try their best uh, to go toe-to-toe with God in battle. And God shows that he's the alpha, the omega, the beginning, and the end. In verses 8 to 20, um, we'll actually go verses 8, not just verse 10. God is going to address his own people through Isaiah. So let's look at verses 8 to 10, and we'll see that God himself is with his people. Verse 8 says this, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you be not dismayed for I am your God. I'll strengthen you. I'll help you. I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. Let's stop there. So even in verse 10, this is what God says, fear not for I'm with you. That's it. The first reason, because God is with his people, there is no reason to fear. Yes, they might be in Um, Babylon, yes, they might be in Assyria. They are deported and exiled from their own home country. It's very traumatic, but yet God promises to be with his people. And God, in this this message, we see a hint of why God would do this. Look at verses 8 to 9. Notice how God addresses the Israelites. In verses 8 to 9, he he calls them Israel, my servants, Jacob, whom I am chosen, the offspring of Abraham. So he's referencing their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to remind them of his promises to his forefathers. Because back in Genesis 17, the very first book of the Bible, God makes a covenant with Abraham and his family. And if God made a covenant with his family, he would not break that promise, even if an enemy nation conquers them. And if you actually read chapter 41, God actually allows enemy nations, Babylon and Assyria, to conquer Israel as a means of discipline, because God's people had become rebellious. But even in exile, God would be with his people. Uh, how many of you guys are going into ninth grade this fall? Anybody? Okay. Uh, what? <laughs> Some of you guys are going to ninth grade, but imagine the comfort that you have if you walk into class, you're scared, you heard this teacher's really tough, but then the teacher says to you, Oh, I know you. I had your older brother. I had your older sister. And instantly, you're you're at peace. And I'm sure many of you guys have older siblings. You know, the Han family, I'm sure, uh, Dustin, you had a really great experience going to Walnut, all your older siblings. I'm sure your teachers love you because you had older siblings at your high school. I'm sure it was amazing. (laughs) Maybe they're shaking their heads. And it's kind of like that. God says to his people, Israel, I knew your forefather, Abraham. I made a promise to him. I will not break that promise. And God makes a promise He does not break it. So whatever fear you have of the future, of failure, of suffering, of death, wouldn't these fears dissolve? Wouldn't these fears disappear if you remember that God already made a promise to you? And we're going to see later what that promise meant, that God will not leave you or forsake you. So in this way, we can live fearlessly. Second reason that we can live fearlessly is that God's enemies will be vanquished. Let's have the next slide, please. Next one after that, actually. Our second point. Uh, next slide, please. Live fiercely because God's enemies will be vanquished. And this is we see this in verses 11 to 13. Let's read that now. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded, meaning confused. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. Verse 13, for I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Let's pause there. So the second reason why we can live fearlessly is because God's enemies will be vanquished. So it's not just that God is with you, but the people who are against you, God's enemies They will be vanquished. They will be confused. They will be um, demolished to nothing. Now, of course, in this original context, this refers to the enemy nations. When they they realize that their false idols are fake and God is the only one holy God, they realize their condition and they are confused. So God is the author of history. This gives a sense of fearlessness. I want to use a concept that maybe you might be familiar with. But I think it applies very appropriately to this um, context. In the next slide, I believe that you guys all have divine plot armor, if you are of God. Let's have the next slide. If you don't know the, the concept of plot armor in anime <laughs> or stories, there are certain characters. They have what's called plot armor, which means they will always survive a situation because the author decided it to be so, because the good guy has to win. If the good guy gets killed off, where's the story? Where's the money? So the good guys, they never actually die. And it has less to do with the characters, but more with what it has to do with the author. So Ash and Pikachu, they can't die. They can get close to dying, but they'll come back to life, like in Pokemon the first movie. Spoilers, I'm sorry. But they can't lose against Mewtwo. That wouldn't be a movie. Harry Potter cannot die against Voldemort. He can get close to dying, but JK Rowling, in her writings, if she wants to make a successful book, Harry Potter has to live. Mario and Luigi cannot lose against Bowser. He can get close, but plot armor protects them because it's the author. It breaks the fourth wall, protects these characters. I know, but I think this really applies because we are living in a story. I believe if God is God, he is the author of history, and he has written a story, and he already knows the end. And you're not the main character. You're a side character. I'm sorry. God is the main character. We're just side characters, but who still have worth in his story. And if you know the end of God's story, there would be no fear in the way you live. Imagine Harry Potter before his final duel with the Elder One against Voldemort. Imagine he had this moment of fear. And I know this didn't happen, but imagine if JK Rowling somehow jumped onto the pages of the book and said, Harry, come on, man. Like I wrote this book. You're going to win. Go out and defeat Voldemort. Your friends will survive. Um, you'll be good. Just..." Go out and do it. And if Harry had this experience of being comforted by the author of this story, think, oh yeah, okay, wow, okay, Avada Kadabra, I win. That's how he would win. Harry would have this confidence because he trusts in the author of the book. Of course, that doesn't happen. That's not what happens. But if you knew the author of life, if you knew the author of human history, and if you knew the end, uh, the end result, wouldn't that give you? a confidence in life. Well, that's exactly what we have. That's exactly what we have in God. You have divine plot armor, so to speak. If you trust in God, there is no way you will lose if you are on God's side. Even if you die for your faith, in the end, you will not lose. You'll be raised to new life. You'll have glorified new bodies in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but if you knew the end of history, there'd be no reason to fear because God is with you. This is an old Reformed confessional. It's called the Heidelberg Catechism. Have you guys ever learned about that in AP Euro history? Maybe not, but it's very important to church history. If I have the next slide, this is what the Heidelberg Catechism has to say about providence because plot armor, if you're like, dude, Kevin's crazy, just look up the theological term providence. That's exactly what plot armor is. This is what a catechism is a question-and-answer format to teach young people the, um, the foundations of the faith. And this is what it says. What do you understand by the providence of God? The almighty, everywhere, present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs, governs them, that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come not by chance, But by his fatherly hand. Think about that. Every act in history, every dust particle in this room, every galaxy that's even been undiscovered, everything that happens in history is governed by our almighty God. If that's the God we have on our side, there's a peace, there's a confidence. You have nothing to fear. This is the power of providence that is on your side and is for you. So live fearlessly because God's enemies will be vanquished. Thirdly, live fearlessly because God turns weak people, you and I, actually into weapons. You're like, huh? That's what happens. Have the next uh, slide, please. Live fearlessly because God transforms weakness into weapons. God's people are weak but God turns us to be dangerous against the kingdom of darkness when we look to him. Look at verses 14 to 16, and we'll see this. Fear not, you worm, Jacob. That sounds insulting. I'll explain that later. You men of Israel, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is a holy one of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You will thresh the mountains and crush them, you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord, and the Holy One of Israel, you shall glory. So stop there. God's people, we can live fearlessly because we are weak as humans, but God turns weakness into strength. Now, Isaiah calls God's people the worm Jacob. Like what? That sounds very insulting. Why would to call someone a worm? That's that's kind of mean, but don't get me wrong, that's not what Isaiah is trying to do. He's not trying to insult them in the moment. He's just trying to, he's trying to show how weakless they are, how helpless they are as exiles because they have no weapons, they're enslaved, they're exiled, there's nothing they can do. But God will turn these worms, these helpless people into weapons. And he calls And he uses these analogies that that are very confusing to us. If we have the next uh, slide, I want to highlight he calls God's people a threshing sledge in verse um, 15. I make of you a threshing sledge. New, sharp, having teeth. What is that? Is that a shark? Uh, I don't understand what that is. You will thresh the mountains. You will thresh the hills. Um, Let me explain that. So the mountains and hills represent the enemy nations. What is a threshing sledge? It's a farming tool, if we have the next slide please, let me explain what this looks like. So what you see on the left is very, very common in the ancient Near East. They have to thresh and to separate the grain from the stock as part of their livelihood. And the way they would do that, they would use what's called a threshing sledge, which you see the guy standing on what looks like a sled, and on the underside of the sledge, which is the picture on the right, That's what a threshing sledge is. They would have, uh, it would be studded with iron spikes, knives, and um, things that are just really sharp to really demolish the the ground underneath. And so they just go around and around. And the more they crush it, the more it would separate um, the barley and the wheat into smaller and smaller pieces. And so that's the first step. But to winnow something, so the guy at the bottom, he's kind of like, Carrying something, he would throw it up in the air, and if there's a strong wind, the wind would carry away the chaff, and the grains would fall to the ground. And so what God is trying to say is, you worm Jacob, <laughs> you might be weak, you might be helpless, but I will turn you into a threshing sledge. And you will uh, dominate and crush the hills and the mountains, which means enemy nations, and the winds and the storms will scatter these enemy nations, and they'll be utterly vanquished. If you still don't get it, in modern terms, God's people will be a meat grinder. (laughs) The enemy nations are meat. God's people will be demolished. That's how powerful God is and how he fights for his people. God's enemies will be utterly vanquished. So if you know the future, if you know what will happen, we have confidence to live fearlessly. But there's a final reason that we should live fearlessly. And it's this, we have the next PowerPoint slide. Live fearlessly because God will will always answer the cries of his people. You may think God's forgotten you. God's people thought that too. But from this passage, we see that God will always answer the cries of his people. And oftentimes, if not now, eventually, with overwhelming blessing. Verses 17 to 20, I'll give you guys a heads up. It can be very confusing to understand because the prophetic genre, prophecy genre, it often has two meanings. It has an immediate fulfillment that applies to the immediate future, but it also has um, what's called a future fulfillment, that in the distant future it will be fulfilled. And so I see this verse as applying to the immediate future that God will provide and answer the cries of his people, but it also applies to a distant future, one that we have not yet experienced. And I think it talks and hints at heaven. So let me read verses 17 to 20, and let me break it down. Verse 17 says this, When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I'll put in the wilderness the cedar, um, I don't even have to, the a- acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I'll set in the, de- in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of God has created it. So this can be very confusing. But as I said, there's probably a double meaning in here. The first immediate meaning probably applies to the immediate future, that one day... God would rescue his people from exile. And that actually happens. If you know your your, uh, Old Testament history, um, in 516 B.C., so 70 years later, God raises up another king, King Cyrus. So King Cyrus of Persia, he conquers Babylon. And when he conquers the nation that conquered Israel, he starts to make different policies. He allows God's people to return to their homeland, Israel and Judah, to rebuild their temple. So imagine if you're exiled and deported and you're allowed to come back because there's new leadership. Imagine the joy as the Israelite people walk back to their homeland. They know that God has answered their blessing. It's like a second exodus, so to speak. And the exodus was monumental in their history. And so Isaiah describes as they walk back through the wilderness, um, a wilderness that's blooming with water and trees, blooming with God's blessing and Provision. That's what it means. But there's also a second fulfillment that I think this um, points at heaven. You might be confused. You might be thinking, wait, what? I thought heaven was clouds and angels. This doesn't seem like it describes heaven at all. Actually, I think that's more of a societal understanding of heaven clouds and angels. That's actually not how the Bible describes heaven at all. Actually, the Bible describes the new heavens and the new earth as a physical place the physical and the spiritual, coming together. The Bible describes heaven as a place where we'll have glorified physical resurrection bodies, just like Jesus, because when Jesus resurrected into heaven, he had a physical body. And so if we're going to be like Jesus, we will have a physical glorified resurrection body with no blemishes, no imperfections. We will be like Jesus. And so God completely reverses the conditions of his people And so the desert, the wilderness, the dry land, and the dry hills, it's replaced with water, rivers, fountains, trees, and life. Death will be turned to life. And if you're kind of thinking in your head, this kind of reminds me of the Garden of Eden. Similar, but even better. Because in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve still sinned, right? But in the new heavens and the new earth, there's no opportunity, not even temptation, to sin. That's how amazing the new heavens and the new earth will be. This is not a sermon on heaven, but I really think that everyone should be thinking and meditating on what heaven will look like. Because if we meditate on the end, that will help us learn how to live in the present. If we know the end, we'll know how to live in the present. And so all this will show us that God is God and we are not. Now, early in the passage, I mentioned to you that Isaiah addresses his people as, um, as Abraham as your forefather. That because God was friends, that Abraham was a friend of God, God will not break his covenant with you. You might be sitting here and thinking, well, how does that apply to me? They were Jewish. Um, I'm not. How does that apply to me? Plus, that was thousands of years ago. How does the promises to Abraham apply to me? This is, isn't this just an ancient book? I want, to, I want to see a powerful promise in Scripture. And I think this will turn everything upside down. Look at Gen- uh, Galatians chapter 3. So you'll need your Bibles for this. It's not on the PowerPoint slide. But turn to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to see the powerful truth that you and I were actually children of Abraham. But I want us to see why and how. I don't want you just to take my word for it. Galatians chapter 3. It's in the New Testament. And if you understand this verse, this opens the Old Testament for you because you'll see Old Testament history as your history. You'll see the family Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as your family history. And I'm not even exaggerating. This is really what the Bible says. So Galatians chapter 3, look at verses 7. Paul speaking to the Galatians. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scriptures for telling that God would justify the Gentiles, that's a non-Jew, you and I, by faith, God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is a very offensive passage. <laughs> if you were a Jew back then, you would say, hey, that's not right. You can only be a, um, a, a child of Abraham if you're Jewish, if you follow, if you're born Jewish. It's by blood. But Paul says something very radical no, you are children of Abraham by faith, not by blood. You see that? So you don't have to be a Jew to be uh, a, a child of Abraham. So all the promises of the Old Testament, all the promises that are geared at the family of Abraham. It's also overflowing into all peoples of the earth. That's the gospel message. That God did not just choose a nation. He did in the beginning, but now he makes the gospel offered to all people so that by faith, you and I can be children of Abraham. That's the key word. If you're wondering, well, how do I get into this family? That's the key word. Verse 7, those of faith. Those of faith. So by faith, are you adopted into the family of Abraham. So the same God who promises to protect the family of Abraham, this is the same God who protects you. But now we have better promises in Christ. So if you're new to church, if you're sitting here for the first time and your friend invited you and you're still figuring out Christianity, the the core of Christianity is simply this. It's submit admit that you're a sinner, just like God's people in the book of Isaiah that you've rebelled and violated against God's commands, just like the Israelites. But yet, you exercise faith, which is simply belief, trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And now you want to follow Jesus with your life. That's it. That's it. There's no uh, works that you have to accomplish to be saved. We're studying world religions in our 9th and 10th grade Sunday school class. Many other religions say, do this, this, and that, and you'll be saved. If you're, it's like karma. If your good works outweigh the bad, you will be saved. There's none of that in the Bible. Because if we truly were to wear good works, even our good works are tainted with evil motivations. We're all lost. And so we need faith. Faith is not trusting in our work. It's trusting in the work of Jesus, who died on the cross. So in a sense, yeah, we are saved by works, but the works of Jesus not our own. You simply exercise faith in the work of Jesus on the cross. And if you made that commitment in your hearts, if you prayed that prayer, it's not a magical prayer, but if you believe that in your hearts, you'll be saved. Your life will no longer be different. That's a simple truth of the Christian faith. And you can live fearlessly, even with a lot of darkness around you, because the God of Abraham is with you. Here's my big idea for today. It's simply this, live fearlessly, next slide after that, live fearlessly by looking faithfully to God himself as your help and as your strength. That's all it is, to live a life without fear, it's simply to look at God faithfully. We recognize our own weaknesses, we recognize that we are actually weak people, but when we look to God who promises to strengthen us, empower us as our help and our strength, That is how you can live life with no fear. Christians, you and I, if you call yourself a Christian, we're weak people. We really are. We simply believe in a God who is all-powerful. So when God is our strength, we can live fearlessly. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray for every person here who has some in their life. They're afraid of school coming up in the fall. And really maybe they're afraid of failing. They're afraid of falling short of expectations that are placed on them from peers and um, society. They're afraid of never making it in life. Maybe they're afraid of death. They're afraid of what's going to happen with their family, their family situation. They're afraid of if they truly live out their faith Will we lose everything? But Lord, remind us of the truth that we'll never realize how much God is all we need when we know that he's all that we have. We might lose everything, but if we lose everything, Lord, we'll see that you're truly all we need and your strength and your power will be enough. Lord, thank you that your promise to Abraham, it also extends to us by faith. Lord, help us to live a life of faith with no fear, because you are our God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.